Okay, you're fine. We'll get you out. Bro, what? Our... We got you, friend. We got you. The fuck? NLT. You just violated their rights. Oh. Kidnapping people. You just oh. violated their rights. Thanks for keeping them fucking... Oh. Welcome, fellow plebs. My name is Sean, and this is... Tribunus Plebi. Hello, everybody. Um, Today, we're starting a show with some bad news. Michael Brooks has passed away suddenly. If you're unaware of who he is, he's a podcaster. That's how I first... uh, came to find his work. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just, uh, I, like I literally just found out about this like a half hour ago. Um, he, he was just a really uh, brilliant man, smart, um, a great, you know, a journalist. Um, he fought for justice all around the world. You know, he always came off as very genuine. And he had... You know, just, uh, I don't know, a great show, uh, great personality. I never really heard a bad thing about him. You know, I I didn't know him personally, but his show and just the way that he handles himself and the way that he thinks was very influential, I guess. It was uh, was a great show. Um, I'm going to miss the hell out of hearing that guy's voice. My condolences to his family, obviously. Um, my condolences to the Majority Report family, which he was part of. And, and, you know, everybody who worked on his show, the Majority Report, that whole crew of people. And, uh, you know, rest in power, Michael. Okay, so that sad news out of the way, I guess. I don't know how you transition out of that. But we shall, we shall move on. Um, But I mean, seriously, if uh, you're interested at all in anything I'm saying, you should check out Michael Brooks, the Michael Brooks show. There will be no more, but you know, the episodes that exist, they're all great. Um, His focus on international stuff was really wonderful. In a, in a country where we are so focused on what's happening here, you know, in our own country, he was always focused very much on, you know, labor and the working class all around the world and not just here. And that was, it was really wonderful. So you can still check out the Michael Brooks show on YouTube and podcasts. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure how to transition out of this. So I'll just uh, move on. So in just a couple real quick things right off the bat that just I just noticed on the old, you know, news feed. Um first is it how Andrew Cuomo and the Democrats in New York actually created you know, they basically created and passed a template for Mitch McConnell's corporate immunity proposal. And they did that all while taking in over a quarter of a million dollars from the healthcare industry, which actually wrote the proposal. 
And I just wanted to note that I'm not going to go real deep on that. That's, you know, I mean, you can Google it, but I mean, just, just, I mean, just think about that. They got paid over a quarter of a million dollars to write a proposal or not even to write a proposal, to take the healthcare industry's proposal and pass it into law to serve the healthcare interest needs to make them immune from being sued. And the Democrats in the Senate, in response to, well, actually the story coming up that I'm going to talk about at the beginning of the kind of the meat of the podcast about what's happening in Portland, Oregon, the Senate Democrats or the Congressional Democrats, I is probably the right way to say it, wrote a, uh, a strongly worded letter to Donald Trump. And then, let me just uh, check the ledger here. Uh, they wrote the strongly worded letter to President Trump about the Department of Homeland Security kidnapping American citizens. And then, let me see, they passed Trump's $50 billion DHS funding bill. What a bunch of fucking scumbags. This says about everything that you ever need to know about the Democratic Party. They see the DHS kidnapping people, so they write a very strongly worded letter to Donald Trump, and then they pass the $50 billion bill to fund that same DHS, the Department of Homeland Security. What a bunch of shitbags. Okay, so we're going to get into the meat of the uh, podcast here, and we're going to start out with that story about Portland. So we actually talked about this a little bit in episode four, when President Trump was talking about sending federal troops into cities to stop the protests from happening and suppress our free speech. And then over the past eight or nine days, there have been consistent protests throughout Portland, Oregon, and the police have repeatedly and violently clashed with the protesters. Right on its face, we need to understand that this is direct and uncontroversial suppression of speech in a country where we are supposed to value free speech above all else, or damn near that anyway. Our first instincts as citizens of the United States, especially if we would claim to be patriotic, or to uphold any of the mythologized ideals that the American freedom is supposed to be made of, is to support we the people, not them, the tyrannical government. A few weeks ago, Trump threatened cities with the prospect of deploying American troops, federal troops, to those cities to violently oppress their population. And yes, the threat was plain. States were warned to violently oppress U.S. citizens or Trump would send in the troops. That threat should have sent chills down the spines of any so-called patriot or free speech advocate who heard it. And don't say, you know, but this or well that either. But they broke windows. Well, what about the broken windows? No, no. Deploying troops into U.S. cities should be resisted with everything we have. And so far, Trump has mostly resisted this urge of his. But this guy is an authoritarian monster in the making, and and every dictatorial move he makes, no matter how small, is a move which, even if it can be rolled back, won't be. 
because our political parties are fucking complicit in this bullshit through their failures to put this dictator light in the handcuffs that he deserves. So yeah, Trump didn't send federal troops into a U.S. city, but he did send federal police into Portland, Oregon. Feds which the state said that they did not want. If you're a conservative, you should be angered simply by the fact that the federal government and the president of the United States is ignoring states' rights and independence here. And if you're an American citizen, you should be shaken to your core, and I mean that, shaken right to your core, that supposed federal agents, and I say supposed because they wore no identifying patches or badges, and what looked like full combat kit, were rolling around in rented minivans and essentially kidnapping citizens. Whether or not this is strictly legal is almost besides the point because it flat out shouldn't be legal. Ever. I mean, we shouldn't give a fuck about much else right now. These individuals were not actively committing violence or even partaking of looting or destruction of property. They were just being rolled up on and kidnapped. There are exactly zero qualifiers we should attach to this situation that could make this less than the horror show that it is. No wells or buts or what ifs. I even saw Brett Weinstein, incestual dimweb royalty, tweet something about, did you see that buildings in Portland were being spray painted and pointing only to protesters when he talked about violence in Portland as he defended these tactics. And this guy, and by the way, now that I'm actually thinking about it, we're going to talk about something a little bit different later uh, about free speech and stuff. And this is the same Brett Weinstein who's a free speech warrior but at the same time is actually calling for a podcast producer to be fired. And, you know, we'll get to a little bit of that later. But I just wanted to note that here that don't trust it. Don't trust the Weinsteins. They're terrible. All right, sorry. We are seeing ICE and DHS turn into de facto secret police running snatch and grabs in American streets, and too many of us are saying it is okay. Some are even so sick in their heads that they cheer this on. They say that they are glad this is happening. They have a Gadsden flag flying over their house, that flag with the snake and the warning, don't tread on me on it. And then they actively cheer as fellow citizens are being tread upon by the very boots that these chud fucks tell us that they fear the most, the boots of the federal government. Listen, I am doing my best to not let this podcast evolve into like overly simplistic talking points. And I'm trying to have some nuance and to present both sides of an argument where it is due. This isn't one of those cases where it's due, I think. Federal agents cannot be allowed to roam our streets and kidnap us, ever, under any circumstances. And the resistance falls to us because anyone we have elected to federal office is not going to do a goddamn thing to stop this. The closest thing we have to someone in office actually doing something to stop this overreach and oppression is like mildly critical tweets directed at the current presidential administration and a letter which they then pass that DHS $50 billion bill to fund it. The most substantial resistance so far from any normative sort of establishment is that the ACLU has sued the president to stop it. That's it. This should terrify all of us. In a more heartening turn, the people protesting in Portland continue to pressure the city and state with their brave activism. When we encounter situations like this one in Portland, we need to always start with supporting the people. That needs to be our de facto starting position at all times. I say starting because any situation can change, but we must start there. If your starting point is to automatically side with the police or military troops when it's them versus citizens, 
you're wrong. You're just wrong. Sorry. And if you take that second starting point as yours, the one where you go police and troops over citizens, and you claim to support the First Amendment, you really need to go back and read what that amendment says and really put some of your limited attention span into figuring out exactly who that amendment is intended to protect you and I and us from. I'll give you a hint by telling you the exactly correct answer. It protects us from the government. Congress shall make no law, it says. Get it? Protest is speech. Jackbooted federal thugs attacking and kidnapping citizen protesters is exactly what the First Amendment was meant to protect us against. And simps all across this country, all of whom swear some sort of childish, servile devotion to the very document that the First Amendment is part of, are cheering it on. Listen, this is something that we need to figure out. You can't be a free speech First Amendment goon only when you agree with the speech. You can't be happy protesters are being kidnapped, beaten, arrested, and assaulted because you are under the impression that they are communists or Antifa or whatever group scares you the most, and then masturbate to pictures of the Bundy boys pointing their rifles at FBI agents because they are patriots in your eyes. In other tangentially related news, these same nougat-brained dimwits are taking people to task for boycotting a food company after the CEO of Goya praised Trump. And these are the same people who burned Nikes when they aired a commercial featuring Colin Kaepernick, by the way. Yep, boycott is free speech as well, in case that's not clear to you. So shut the fuck up about it. The CEO is free to speak. Customers are free to respond. And just to be clear, for the less astute of us out there, this isn't a First Amendment issue. This is just simple free speech stuff, like lowercase free speech. You are certainly free to disagree with the boycotters. You can 100% think it's a bad idea or that the results will be bad for the company and bad for the employees or bad for the economy or for any other reason you might have. But boycott is an entirely valid way to voice displeasure with a company, person, or entity. Personally, I really want to try a Chick-fil-A sandwich. I really do. That's not, I'm not bullshitting you at all. I have heard so many people talk about how good they are. I really, really want to go buy one and try it out. But I won't. I won't do it because I am, you know, basically boycotting them because of their homophobic, anti-LGBTQ lobbying. And I encourage everybody who listens to this to not buy those delicious sandwiches for the same reason. This is our right, and it is entirely just to withhold our money from companies or people which we disagree with, no matter the reason. I also do my best not to shop at Walmart because I disagree with so much of what they do as a business, including their anti-union stance. Does Chick-fil-A or Walmart really care about me not shopping there? No, not really. But I persist because those companies suck. Please stop spending your money there if you can avoid it. And listen, if, you know, saving a few dollars every time you shop is the difference between you, you know, eating a healthy meal and not, yeah, go shop at Walmart. I get it. I 100% get it. But if you can avoid shopping at bad companies, please avoid it. Now, this episode, it was originally going to be about something totally different, but the world forced me into this audible at the last minute. And since I am running this audible, I'm going to talk a little bit about a related issue that came up this past week, the Harper's Letter. 
For those unaware, this was an open letter which was published on the Harper's Magazine website, and I guess it will be in the magazine in the future. And it was ostensibly a pushback against censorship and so-called cancel culture. It was signed by a lot of famous, semi-famous, and somewhat unknown folks. On the good side were people like Noam Chomsky, who I have a shitload of respect for, and I guess Zephyr Teachout. There's probably a few others. I didn't go through the list too uh, thoroughly. On the other side are really just awful people like David Frum and David Brooks, just awful people, and a ton of others, including, oddly enough, Wynton Marsalis. Why Wynton was there is beyond me, but he's a, I guess he's a good jazz musician. I even hesitated to talk about this thing because it feels so, like, online to me. Like, it seems that only people who spend too much time on Twitter really know about this. But my relatively limited online life kind of forces me to deal with many of the people who signed this letter and the general thrust of the text itself, so I felt like I should talk about it. And by the way, if you're unfamiliar with the letter itself, you can just search Harper's Letter in your favorite search engine and it, it will come right up. It was originally published on harpers.org. I toyed with the idea of actually reading the letter here, but I decided to spare everybody from hearing even more of my voice than you'll be subjected to otherwise. Um, the letter itself is short, and it's worth taking a look at, including the names of those who signed on to it, so I encourage you to do that. So here's the thing about this letter. On its surface is what may pass for a broad critique of the aforementioned boogeyman cancel culture. It argues its point using the sorts of words that can convince you that, it, that it's actually a smart piece, you know, because it used that overly wrought language, much in the style of Jordan Peterson. But underneath all of that, $10 words is a sort of bland indictment, which is not as generalized as it, as it appears. And that last part is really the major issue I have with it. This is not as broad an attack as it was passed off as. This entire letter is a literary Trojan horse being used to smuggle in anti-left rhetoric. It is your basic incestual dimweb anti-SJW argument wrapped in a garish radical centrist shroud. Now, I've talked about context before and how crucially important it is to take context into account as we assess situations and about how we tend to look at individual acts in a vacuum, and then we fail to understand how truly terrible those acts are because we don't understand how they fit into the larger, broader zeitgeist. In a vacuum, this letter doesn't really seem like anything evil or even bad. What could be wrong about being pro-free speech? Really, nothing is wrong with that simple concept, if I'm being honest with you. But then the argument slides into the cancel culture bullshit, and it, and it does so slyly. The letter doesn't just parrot those you know anti-SJW-type arguments made famous by the IDW dorks on Twitter and podcasts. Instead, it cloaks them in an air of centrism and bad faith. The signees of this letter, all of whom profess to worship free speech, free media, and free exchange of ideas, are disturbingly silent, you know, as an example, when the President of the United States, the actual leader of the actual government that the First Amendment and the right of free speech is literally written to protect us against, continues to push to punish and censor the media and even protesters at his rallies and events. These people are disturbingly silent as the President orders federal troops, there are those federal troops again, by the way, to gas and brutalize a peaceful protest outside of the White House so that he could get a photo op at a church. The signers of this letter are largely silent as media members 
clearly marked so on their clothing, unlike the kidnapped squads of federal police roaming Portland in unmarked vans, sans badges or identification, or being beaten by police and even arrested, sometimes live on air. Hell, one of the people who lost their job that the letter mentions is James Bennett, who ran the op-ed page of the New York Times. He published a letter from Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton, which espoused support for state violence against protesters. Yes, an actual First Amendment issue. Bennett himself, the guy who literally okayed the piece, first defended its publication, then admitted, or hey, maybe he lied here, that he didn't actually read the letter. The Times has said that the letter did not meet their quote-unquote standards, whatever that means as well. I don't know, maybe I'm crazy here. But maybe the editor of the op-ed pages at the New York Times should be fired for okaying the publishing of a letter which he says he didn't even read and thereby didn't actually do his job that promoted violence against American citizens for exercising their free speech. Actually, you know what? I know I'm definitely not crazy for thinking that. The guy either didn't do his job or he just sucked at it. Why would you continue to employ that person? This rhetorical Trojan horse contained in its belly not just an attack against those of a certain ideological bent, but also smuggled in a lightly veiled defense of racist, homophobic, and bigoted language of all sorts. And that last part is a true poison here, and I believe that poison was the real intent of this letter. There is, at the core of the letter, an absurdity. That this list of signatories, editors, opinion writers, professors, Writers, columnists, authors, media titans, and wildly popular podcasters, to name a few, truly some of the most well-paid, most platformed, most powerful, and most influential people in this country truly perceive Twitter dorks as the true enemy of free speech in this country is, frankly, astounding in its idiocy. The grievance that this letter seems to suggest that society is at risk because people tell the New York Times that they shouldn't publish letters that ask for or demand and normalize state violence in service of the suppression of free speech falls flat. I'm sorry, but receiving Twitter insults because your opinion sucks or you said something racist is not censoriousness. Sorry for using that word. That word was used in a letter. It's a shitty word. And its use is part of that Jordan Peterson shtick I mentioned. Use big words to sound smart and important and serious. It's not censorship or that oh-so-nebulous so-called cancel culture either. It's just normal societal shit. Like, you said something racist, and you got yelled at. Free speech and whatnot. And yeah, you might get fired for being an asshole. Sorry. But hey, how about this? How about the real problem is higher at will laws? Maybe if you're truly worried about being quote-unquote wrongly fired, you should actually step the fuck up and fight for workers' rights and unionize. How about you stand with the working class and... Oh, oh shit, no, sorry, right. I forgot. You're a highly paid Washington Post opinion writer and member of the editorial board. You're one of the most powerful, influential, and most read members of the media. You're not actually interested in any of this. You just want racists to keep their jobs. Get fucked. Seriously, just get fucked. 
When you see the list of signees on this letter, you need to look at who they are and what ideas they espouse. You need to fight through that centrist veil, that thin veneer that masks the intentions of a letter like this and wonder exactly why these people signed it. From Brooke, Mount, Pinker, and others. What does this say about the letter and its intentions? Does it say that they're scared of being canceled? These people have some of the most massive and, in- and influential platforms in the country, if not the world. Some of them are immensely wealthy. All of them are extremely influential and perpetually in possession of bullhorns that go to volume 11 and reach all corners of the globe. This letter is a gutless, self-serving PN written by powerful assholes to serve those same powerful assholes. Take a look at it. Notice the complete lack of concern for the quieted masses. Notice they don't mention how the most powerful media platforms in the world, places like the Washington Post and the New York Times and cable news, routinely fail to give voice to the disenfranchised and minorities. And the letter contains within it an even darker aspect, that the critiques of these people that the massive media platforms fail to serve, the LGBTQ community, the minorities, the poor, now have a voice, and that voice is loud enough to be heard. And these people are terrified because the voice of the people now carries weight and challenges their authority. Not only that, but these voices, the voices of the historically oppressed, marginalized, and silenced, carry real weight and can actually affect change. These people are not scared that these voices are going to get them fired. They are terrified that these voices are now being listened to. They are mortified that a black, gay, destitute mill worker in a flyover state now has a voice that can reach thousands or even millions of people, including the signer's own peers and bosses. And again, we cannot leave out the grander context here. This letter is not in a vacuum. This letter is published right now, and it is backed by certain people. And this might be as good a time as any to mention that the multiple signers of this letter have actually, and famously, led the charge to actually get people fired for, just wait for this, saying things that they did not approve of. Probably most famous for this is Barry Weiss, who just quit the New York Times and martyred herself on the way out. And listen, I actually feel bad for Barry. If her resignation letter has even a tiny grain of truth in it, the New York Times sounds like a shitty place to work. It sounds like an abusive place to work, and I'm glad she left. Right now, this country, we, as a people, are battling against a wealthy and almost unbelievably powerful system and group of elites who exist within it. And those forces are battling back against us, against the citizens of this country. This is the zeitgeist in which this letter exists. Right in the beginning of the letter, they mention these times in passing. The letter says, quote, Our cultural institutions are facing a moment of trial. Powerful protests for racial and social justice are leading to overdue demands for police reform, along with wider calls for greater equality and inclusion across our society, not least in higher education, journalism, philanthropy, and the arts, end quote. Yet, and here's the twist, the cruel irony even, this letter is fighting the exact opposite fight. They claim to support criticism of cultural institutions and equality, yet the very nature and arguments of this letter do none of the above. 
All this letter is truly interested in is maintaining the voices of those who signed it and those who exist in the same elite stratosphere. They do not want equal voice or free exchange of ideas. They simply want their voices to remain loud, their paychecks to remain heavy, and their influence to remain supreme. They seek to exist above criticism, above banal threat, and above, more importantly than all else, consequences. It's important for us to be extremely critical of letters like the one published in Harper's. It seems harmless on its face, but it is anything but that. It is a deeply dangerous and a boring sort of way. All full of fancy, but mostly bland language, it is pointed in a few spots, but mostly vague and undefined. But this use of language, coded, fancy, and boring all, all at the same time, and banking on the obtuseness of and eagerness of its readers, hides a pernicious threat. Status quo radical centrism. And what the letter lacks is just as important. It lacks any mention of Donald Trump silencing the government agencies and scientists. It ignores anti-BDS boycott, divestment, and sanctions laws passed by universities, companies, states, and federal government. It doesn't mention reporters being arrested live on air by thug cops. It doesn't mention peaceful protesters being attacked by police and federal agents. Nowhere in the letter were Edward Snowden or Chelsea Manning mentioned. This cancel culture issue is not entirely made up or fake. And we, as citizens, need to recognize the reality of what it is, and we need to take it on with open eyes. But we can do that without falling prey to the attack that this letter is. We can deal with these issues on our own terms, on the terms of we the people, the citizenry, not on the terms of the moneyed and influential elite. Do not advocate for the powerful. Advocate for the disadvantaged. Advocate for the powerless. Advocate for the victims of bigotry and oppression. Advocate for the voiceless. This letter advocates for none of those. It advocates for the already powerful. Free speech is something to be defended by the political right and the political left, and even the extremes of all sides, including the center. But we can't allow these assholes to drive the narrative any more than we can allow Tucker Carlson to drive it. When bad people present seemingly good ideas, don't praise them. Why? Because bad people who espouse ideas that sound good are just smuggling in a horrific agenda. As an example, and I'm going to go with the extreme here because more subtle versions of this would require more nuance, explanation, and time to work our way through properly, and I don't want to do that. So you're going to get the extreme example here for simplicity. Actual out-and-proud white nationalists and anti-Semites routinely praise Israel. They defend Israel at every turn. So why would people like this, people who hate the Jewish people, heap praise onto a predominantly Jewish state? It's because these people want a white ethnostate, and they like to use Israel as an example of a country that is formed around a race and a religion. They don't support Israel for any other reason. In fact, they explicitly hate the people who live there. The white nationalists point to Israel with exuberance and say, look, why can't we just be a white Christian nation here and throw out all of these brown people, Asians, and Jews? And I think we can all see that this is dangerous shit here, and we can't just say, well, you know, white nationalist Richard Spencer, he sure has a good idea here, like a bunch of goofballs. When Tucker Carlson makes a point that sounds good, 
fuck him. Because that idea is a Trojan horse for the weird, soft, white nationalist bullshit he espouses. Do not let a shitty person like him tell our story. Don't give him the oxygen. This is not their story. This is our story. And we need to live it, fight it, shout it, and write about it. We do not have to rely on the bullshit stories from some feckless asshole in a Manhattan editorial office who is trying to exist without criticism or consequences. Rest in power, Michael Brooks. <laughs>